everyone, my name is Alice. Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. Thank you so much for downloading and listening in. Today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about an American poet called Joanne Kiger. Kiger is somebody who I had basically written off after reading her collection On Time. This is a collection that was published in 2015 and it is a collection of poems written over almost a decade. The subtitle is Poems 2005 to 2014. So that's a pretty big body of work to dismiss on my part, but uh, it really didn't do anything for me. The way that Kaiga writes is very immediate and diaristic. It felt like almost no revision had taken place in this collection and while it's obvious that in the couple of hundred pages here she's collected what she thought were the best poems from that nearly decades worth of work I still felt as if not enough had gone into them but I've changed my tune a little bit on this I've developed a new appreciation for her and that's because I came across a poem by Robert Adamson a couple of weeks ago, which is dedicated to Joanne Kiger, and that prompted me to go back to this collection and think about it again. And through doing that, I also came across a couple of interesting issues to do with her place in what we think of as the world of the beat poets. So I hate to admit this to you, but I actually hadn't read any Robert Adamson poems until a couple of weeks ago. I'd never come across his collections, and when I did, I just didn't feel drawn to them. He's basically one of those Australian poets who I have just sidestepped in favour of work that I'm more interested in, and it's always been a source of uh, guilt, I suppose. He felt like somebody that I definitely should have read by now, So over the weekend, I was staying in a friend's place and raiding the bookshelves, and I picked up Robert Adamson's The Golden Bird, which is his new and selected from 2008, and started picking my way through there and finding poem after poem that just sparkled, just absolutely spoke to me and gave me that feeling of, oh my God, what have I been missing here? I've just totally overlooked somebody who's incredible and uh, obviously everybody else knew this and I was just avoiding his work for no good reason. And so there are a number of poems in there that were really, really fantastic and, and really stood out to me. But the one that really piqued my interest was a poem called Bolinas Bay, an ode, which is dedicated to Joanne Kiger. I'm super interested in relationships between poets, between contemporaries, especially if they are transcontinental. My tendency is towards US poetry. I know too much about the US poets and not enough about um, poets of any other country, really, including Australia. And so I'm always really fascinated to find connections between between the Americans and, and other poets, especially if they're Australian poets. It just feels like the US is such a, a bubble. It's so contained 
and you know why would there be any connection they they seem so disinterested in other schools of poetry and we spend or at least I spend all my time kind of looking towards the US for poetry that I admire and that speaks to me Um, and while that feels really wrong it also feels kind of unavoidable and so the fact that this poem is written for Joanne Kiger and is clearly written about an experience that Adamson had at her place in Bolinas Bay in, in California Um, I just found that really fascinating. It describes an afternoon at her house, sitting outside, surrounded by hummingbirds and leaves and trees, and just sounds like a beautiful afternoon of discussion. I'll read you the first two stanzas, just three-line stanzas here. So, Bolinas Bay, an ode for Joanne Kiger. At Joanne's, Three rainbows over the bay. In the garden, talking, our birds' song and calls, spun to metaphors in sunlight. Words, all afternoon, mingled with their meanings. Songs of light, memories of poets, along sempiternal zones in our heads. Had to look up that word sempiternal. Yeah, apparently it denotes eternity or everlasting time. So I suppose what Adamson is getting at there is memories of poets that are everlasting. I also love that the first line is written at Joanne's Three Rainbows Over the Bay. This poem was written before the double rainbow meme. I'm sure of that. Um, But I just think it's a really funny idea that Robert Adamson might have been responding to that meme, that YouTube video. He's not, but it's just... I just like that. Towards the end of the poem, Adamson also talks about Joanne opening her intellect's wings, memories atomic particles collide, sparks glow in Joanne's pupils, her energies packing a punch. She sounds like a really fascinating person to have known based on this beautiful poem. So having read that, I went back to this collection on time, which I was given as a gift and read and thought, yeah, just don't really like it. It just feels too, too immediate, by which I mean these poems don't feel as if they've been revised at all. It's a collection of poems from 2005 to 2014, and each has a date at the end. Quite a few of them are dedicated to people. It's about 125 pages So actually not that much work given the time span. And so as I said, when I first read it, I thought, well, these feel like first drafts and I don't like that. I want my poetry to feel as if it's been worked over and over and over again until it's really shining. And that's not how these come across. Um, I'll read you a short example here. This this is... um, March 3rd, 2010. It's dedicated to Arthur Okamura. It's called Arthur's Birthday 2010. Now light a small red votive in front of the photo of your concentrated drawing of what's in front of you, the people that miss you. So yeah, really simple, really direct, immediate. It reminds me a lot of Sid Corman's work who I've spoken about on the podcast before. And when you look at 
articles about Joanne Kygo who died in 2017. She was 82. There are a lot of mentions of her Zen influences. And in this book as well, there's a lot of poems that touch on uh, her Buddhist practice and her relationships with um, Buddhist practitioners and, and Zen Buddhists. So that was clearly a big part of her life. And I suppose it must have also been part of her poetic practice as well. So I started to see this immediate type of writing in a different way on second reading. If it's 125 pages and it's a decade's worth of work, there are many, many, many poems that didn't make it in to this collection. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that Joanne was probably writing a poem every day. So even if these poems are first drafts, perhaps that's a kind of, of revising. She talks a lot about this in an interview she did in 97 with Jacket Magazine, talking about how she tries to capture the original spirit of the poem first time. She says, when you get going in the process of writing, there's a breath and rhythm that starts to build up inside. The song starts singing. The vowels fall into place with the breathing and rhythm. When you try and re-stress and redo the words and lines, it's very hard to recreate the original brightness. That's why it's nice to get it close, as close as you can the first time. The other thing I really didn't like about this book was the way that Kaiga spreads almost all her poems across the pages and I couldn't see any reason for that. I re- that really annoys me sometimes when I feel like poets are doing that kind of spreading across the page just for the fun of it. But she talks about that as well in this interview. She says, it's so boring to pick up a book of poetry and see that left-handed margin going evenly up and down the page like a platoon of soldiers. And then she talks more about what she's actually trying to do with that formatting. She says, I'm always amazed that this isn't taught more, how to translate the voice to the page to get the, the little subtleties of breath and tone or change of tone or character emphasis. There's one really good essay that I've never been able to find again, I think by Williams. He says, okay, let's get this all down. A period has three breath stops. A comma has a breath stop, a semicolon, a breath stop and a half. Empty space means nothing goes on but breathing until you get to the next word. You're scoring your reading. Otherwise you follow this boring convention of the straight left-hand margin, a kind of cookie cutter block stamp. So once I read that, I thought, okay, well, that actually is a pretty compelling reason to use that sort of formatting. She's actually trying to reflect a way of speaking and a way of thinking. And the dailiness of the writing and the immediacy of that daily writing is really important. It's a choice that she's made not to rework her poems and to present them on a page in such a way that it causes you to take pauses and allow yourself space to think in between the lines. So my appreciation for the work started to grow the more I thought about that. 
One of the other things I came across repeatedly while I was researching Kygo a bit more was the fact that she was consistently described as a beat generation poet. I thought that was really interesting because reading this collection, beat poetry is kind of the last thing I thought about. And I also thought it was interesting because when I think of beat poets, unfortunately, I tend not to think of women. I think of On the Road and trying to read that book and feeling like every single woman in this book is just making some guy a pie. (laughs) Some guy is like driven up and like needs somewhere to sleep and something to eat and he's just about to leave again. But Kaiga is described as one of the poets of the Beat Generation, although interestingly she's not included in the Poetry Foundation's collection of Beat Poets. The only woman in that collection is a poet called Diane de Prima. So thinking about all that, I remembered that there is this great poem in this Kaiga collection about beat poets. And I thought I'd share this one with you and have a bit of a closer look at it because it's quite funny and quite counter a lot of the other poems in the book. A lot of the poems in this collection are very strongly anti-war, anti-Bush era. She's a pacifist, essentially, from what I can tell from these poems. So keep that in mind while you listen to this poem. It's called, I'm very busy now, so I can't answer all those questions about beat women poets. A startled melancholy underlies all. The party's over for the dollar. Blood-spattered wallpaper would find a substantial niche market. Is it that you don't want to do it? Or is it that you can't make the private public like the poet? But does the public want to hear it? US has a lot of enemies. Are they mine too? Not a very nice night. I'm stuffing a long woolen muffler into this person's mouth. And that one's dated March 4th, 2010. So yeah, I really love this one. I think it's probably my favorite one in the book. It's got such a violent end and I don't not I don't love it because of the violent end. I love it because I feel like Joanne is showing a little bit of rage here when so many of the other poems are so strongly pacifist. It's a collection, each stanza is a a little flash of an image. The party's over for the dollar at the beginning. There's blood spattered wallpaper. Then there's this question of whether you don't want to do something or can't do something. The question of the private public and the US and its enemies. There's very little continuity. These things are just kind of flashing in and out of the poem. The last stanza, which is pushed a little bit further to the left than the rest of the poem, uh, begins with a long M-dash. And this is what I think is, is quite hilarious, really. Not a very nice night. I'm stuffing a long woolen muffler into this person's mouth. Obviously, she's not doing that, but I can imagine her on a panel being asked for the millionth time to talk about her place as a beat poet and a woman and her role in that history and what that was like for her as a woman and just feeling so frustrated 
and uh, imagining taking this person's scarf and stuffing it into their mouth. Obviously, like a, a horrendous idea and very reminiscent of, you know, like um, torture practices that she would have been writing against and, and probably campaigning against in her life. Um, but yeah, there's just this flash of anger, I think, is, is very funny for some reason. I don't know why it amuses me so much. Yeah, the title is hilarious and fantastic as well. I'm very busy now, so I can't answer all those questions about beat women poets. She has other things on her mind. You know, she's thinking about the US and its enemies. She's thinking about uh, economics. She's thinking about the role of the poet in public and private life. She doesn't have time to answer another question about women in beat poetry. I do think the order of the words in the title is interesting too. Those questions about beat women poets, not women beat poets, but beat women poets. Again, there's like this little hint towards violence there, which is quite creepy. So yeah, as of March 2010, at least, it seems like Kaiga had reached her breaking point with these questions about what it was like to be a woman in the beat poetry scene. But after Kaiga died, of course, that classification of her work as part of the beat generation uh, resurfaced. The New York Times obituary calls her a zen-infused beat generation poet, and the Paris Review references the San Francisco Gates description of her, which which was that she was a leading poet of the San Francisco Renaissance and a rare female voice of the male-dominated beat generation. It is hard not to wonder what that would have been like, though. I watched the documentary on um, Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review. God knows why I made myself sit through that whole thing. It was so intensely boring, so hagiographic. Even at the very start, Dylan is kind of like, I don't even know what this thing was. I don't even know why we're talking about it. And almost every single woman in the documentary is only talk, is only spoken about in relation to the male artists. Um, yeah, quite incredible. Obviously, Ginsberg is all through it because he went on that tour with them as kind of resident poet, although I think towards the end they ran out of time for the poetry, so he was just kind of cleaning things for them. Yeah, Anne Waldman was there, but she, she's in the footage, but just totally not mentioned at all, so that was kind of crazy to see. But you can't help but wonder what it was like. And the Paris Review article has republished one of the poems that they had previously published of Kaiga's, which I think maybe sheds a tiny bit of light on, on this question. So this was published in the Paris Review in 1973, and it's just called June 7. I'll just read the first half. June 7, to get a head start. Yeah, but I'm too old. Yeah, but I'm growing too old to wait around this long. Nobody wants to sit with me. Forgive this interlude for a while. I became infinitely glamorous and careless, like the best memory of past loves. I often tell women's secrets to men. 
I think that last line that I just read, I often tell women's secrets to men is totally fascinating. And I feel like that gives a really interesting clue as to what Kyger's life might have been like, you know, being surrounded by male artists all the time. In my own life, when I was in my early and mid-20s, all my friends were male, essentially. And I felt a really strong urge sometimes, uh, maybe a necessity, to sell out the women around me for a little bit of like extra cred, um, which is such a bullshit move. And something that I still regret to this day that I, that I allowed myself to go with that tendency. But... Yeah, I think that's just a, a funny little mechanism in the way that patriarchy works is like you you feel like you need to borrow power from those that have it. And one of the ways that you can do that is by doing something like telling another woman's secrets to a guy. I think it's really cool that it's she's just said that in her poem June 7 in 1973 and articulated that fact. So having an awareness of that is great. Um, but interestingly enough, when we go back to this interview, which is published in Jacket from 97, there is an instance of this exact thing happening of Kaiga telling a woman's secrets. So they're talking about this question of what it was like for Joanne, when she was surrounded by all these male artists and writing with them. And she, she talks about this directly. She says, when I was younger... I spent a lot of time in North Beach, 1957. It was great. A little bar called The Place was happening. Robert Duncan and Jack Spicer had a circle of young writers that got together on Sundays. We read our poems, and they would comment on them and read their poems too. Then we'd go to a bar in North Beach afterwards. And the interviewer asks, Were there many other women besides you? And Joanne says, Not really. Diane Wachowski came a couple of times, but she didn't like the questions or criticism, and she would cry. Talk about telling a woman's secret. <laughs> Poor Diane Wachowski. Um, yeah, I, I feel like if you have been a woman operating in a group or an environment that is male-dominated, you will understand this response, though. Not just the fact of saying, oh, I was tougher than Diane. I was the one who could hack the criticism. But also that need to not be the one that cries. That need to take the hard notes, you know, and to rise to the kind of macho environment, that macho artistic environment where people are kind of ripping each other's work apart. Yeah, when, when those are the rules... I guess it's a question of can you hack it or not and questioning whether that's a healthy way to share and critique work and whether that's a way to to support artists to get better well that's kind of irrelevant this is the way it's done and uh, can you hack it or are you gonna cry <laughs> are you gonna go and cry so look, I think I probably started off by saying that I admired Kaiga's work and then talked my way around to presenting her as, as sort of a problematic figure towards the end there. I want to end with another poem of hers from this collection, On Time. Um, this one is about rewriting. It's called Stoutly Maintains I Never Rewrite. 
So what about those many sheets of drifting time and intense, hoping to pin down the elusive tone that makes a poem? Peripheral from the sidelines, looking in from the edge. Always give yourself a quick escape route at assemblies of people. Sit near an exit, be on the fringe, able to drift away. From the front and center, places where power plays a dangerous role. On earth, the only place we can live. <laughs>